We also wonder about the worthiness of others to receive attention. We might assume we shouldn't bother or talk with that person for whatever reason or that coworker that is just way too opinionated or even mean-spirited. We might feel that things aren't fair when we're passed up for that promotion or not given the recognition we feel we should have gotten. And at, at our worst, uh, we may feel some resentment in our hearts because we have already prejudged whether someone else is deserving. And take a moment. We've probably all heard ourselves say in that secret place in our hearts, they don't deserve that, which is another way of saying they're not worthy. But who decides who is worthy or unworthy? And for that matter, how, how do we as people, how do we truthfully and wisely discern if we are worthy? And then you're probably asking, worthy of what? Worthy of what? Questions of worthiness, I think, trigger for many of us a whole array of baggage. And for some of this, us, this baggage involves fears of insecurity we feel or prejudice and pride we harbor or even self-condemnation at our own sense of failure and unworthiness that somehow we hold on to and make part of our identity. This is significant baggage, but it ties in with this reality, I think, that we all have a deep longing to be known, and in that place of knowing to somehow still be found worthy, to somehow still be found lovable. As we hear Paul's exhortation in our Philippians passage, uh, this may sound a little bit like the warning announcement that's given on an airplane before landing and takeoff. The overhead bins on this flight may shift, and when they're open, the baggage may try to knock you out. Paul brings us into this very live question of what it means to be worthy and that verse 27, the first, the first verse that was read this morning, um, it can be glossed over very quickly, but I, I don't want us to, to jump over it. We have to start here, and there's a reason why. He says in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul suggests that there is a kind of life that can be lived and experienced by God's people that reflects at its core how valuable and exalted the gospel of Jesus Christ truly is. There is a life that we can live in the here and now that reflects the reality of the gospel. Paul relates that the good news about Jesus is worth living a life that radiates the truth and reality of that good news. So how is this worthiness of the gospel revealed? And and I think the the passage that follows from this opening verse, that is is the answer in in long and short. And, And one of the ways Paul addresses this, I think the primary way in our passage today, is through visible unity within the community and how the community works together believes together and faces opposition and suffering together. So, so this is the themes are all around 
this visible expression of the community of the body of Christ coming together and working together and displaying the reality of that gospel. This tangible unity shows the the union or the being united in one spirit and one mind. In the span of of these three verses that, that follow immediately after verse 27, Paul paints a portrait of what worthiness of the gospel involves. He makes it sound so easy and straightforward, right? He said, well, we'll show unity. But wait a second. Uh, Paul, have, uh, this might have worked for the early church, though I think that's debatable. Uh, but have, have he, has he seen the state of the church in the 21st century? Uh, unity? Really? Visible Unity? Uh, I'm, I'm sure even Paul might have trouble counting how many denominations have cropped up since those early letters that were written. Um, or, or even if we get the unity right in our maybe siloed part of the church, how much standing firm in one spirit is there? I think we are a divided people. We are divided even within ourselves in many ways. Divided among ourselves, divided about where to invest our time, where to invest our resources, how to prioritize, what to prioritize, not to mention how often we do our own thing rather than strive side by side with others. Because let's be honest, it's hard to work with personalities, right? Some people are hard to work with. So it's easier to do it our own way, to do our own thing. And don't even bring up how we deal with suffering. This is a place that that terrifies many of us. And and we try to run, many times the reaction is trying to run as far and as fast away from from suffering as possible. My my point in all of that is, is not simply to discourage us, but to say that this is actually very rigorous criteria that Paul is setting out here. It's not hard for me to say that on an initial assessment of these facts that we do have cause to be discouraged, to feel, to feel a sense of unworthiness. Have, Have we failed being worthy of the gospel of Jesus in our lives, in our community? And I I think we have to confess that we are prone to division, prone to live not in one spirit, but in many spirits, nor to strive in one mind, but in many minds. We are beset with fears and at times even fearful to voice those fears to the people around us. And maybe like Paul, we face actual suffering Or like the Philippians, the threat, the possibility of suffering. And some of us find ourselves broken by the suffering we feel and fearful that it may last. And if it does last, we are concerned or fearful that we're like the seed in the parable falling on the shallow soil which withers because its roots cannot withstand the trial set before them. Yes, there are many reasons for us to be discouraged, not only in failing to understand what it means to live worthy of the gospel, but in failing to live 
into the call that God places on the entirety of our lives. That the entirety of our lives are meant to be expressions of that gospel of Jesus. But the good news, of course, is that Paul doesn't leave us in this state of discouragement or disarray. His exhortation challenges us, but has the more effect, uh, profound effect of shifting our focus. And this brings us into chapter 2. And I'll spend the, sort of the, the last half of this uh, focusing on here. Uh, he opens in the beginning of chapter 2. If you have ever been encouraged in Christ received comfort from the love of God, tangibly poured out in your life, experienced fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit, or shared in some aspect of the goodness and beauty of God. I'm definitely paraphrasing here. Uh, Then, he uses that word then, this rhetorical flourish is an invitation to think about the words, duh, of course, of course, on some level, The body gathering, the the people called out who gather together, they have tasted on some level, no matter how far distant it may have seemed or felt, we have all tasted something of the goodness of God. Otherwise, I feel we would probably not keep coming back or we would not be here to begin with. And so that's the framework for where Paul is going. Though we live under the conditions of suffering, we have tasted the goodness of God. And the Philippians shared in this goodness and consolation even in the midst of trials. So Paul establishes this at the outside because he wants us to know that none of us pull ourselves up by the bootstraps None of us bring ourselves into the kingdom. We love because God first loved us and draws us to himself. Yes, there is lament and repentance and recognition of our need for forgiveness. The whole paradigm of Lent invites us to the reality that we need to live as confessional people, that we have reasons to confess before God. But alongside this is a powerfully attractive vision of a fuller life, a life characterized by participation in the spirit, receiving that comfort from love and encouragement. You see, Paul reminds us that whereas we may have cause to be discouraged, there is a deeper pattern of the gospel at work that is to bring courage and transformation Because it is the work of God in our lives, the kindness of God in Christ that leads us to repentance and healing. And from this place of encouragement and comfort in Christ, we are called to be, Paul says, of the same mind, having the same love and being in full accord in mutual agreement and support. There is both a call to unity and also an intentional commitment to one another as we move together toward the goal of the upward call of God. Paul suggests that unity comes through humility. And if I had to summarize 
sort of his whole discussion of unity in this passage, it's that phrase, unity through humility. And this is not a humility that we imagine or envision for ourselves. This is a humility that Christ sets forth of the reality of what that humility means. Paul invites movement from a place of self-righteousness, self-centeredness toward others' centeredness and it's this pattern what immediately follows is this pattern that says that shows this is what to reject and this is what to embrace so he starts with the rejection do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit this is what to embrace in humility count others more significant than yourselves and then the following pattern The rejection is, do not look to your own interests merely. And then the embrace, look to the interests of others. When we are facing the threat of suffering or actual suffering, what what are some of the natural ways that we respond when we're entering toward a crisis, when we see a crisis coming our way? You know, if we're fearful and worried this some of this might sound familiar so one of the things i've thought about is so i've got to get what i can for myself out of this situation because i could be destitute or i may not have what i need to survive i may not there may not be enough for me if i don't try to store and hold on to what is going to help sustain me when I am facing or confronted with a hardship and with a trial. When we allow this fear of scarcity to drive our actions, this reveals not only profound distrust, but also disunity within the body. It's saying in part that I can't trust that there are others in this church who are looking out for my needs, that I've got to do it for myself, otherwise I will be bereft. Or if our reaction is one of pride, our concern is that we might be seen as needy. Heaven forbid that anyone would think I have needs that maybe they can meet. And maybe we have been burned by others. Maybe we have been let down. And so there's a sense that that we have justification uh, to not trust people are going to come through. Or pride in thinking that We don't need the mutual support of others who may very well want to be there for us. So whatever the motivations in these examples, Paul suggests that part of the unity we're called to involves looking outside of ourselves and turning toward another through the eyes of faith and love. Can can you imagine how different our interactions are would be if we looked at others with even a fraction of the love that God in Christ beholds us with. I know in my my own life, it has been the places where I have felt most unworthy and broken and have met the face of Christ in the listening heart and face of a fellow believer that I have experienced some of the depth of the God who faces us in love. But Paul doesn't stop here. He goes on in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. And, and here's the unsettling but then resettling part. Which is yours 
in Christ Jesus. He's not saying, think through this long enough and you'll be worthy to share in this mind. But have, this is yours. Receive this mind among yourselves because you have already been given this mind in Christ Jesus. The impossible work has already been done by Jesus. And and our invitation is to live out of the reality that he has all of what he has already done and is doing in us. So what is this mind which is ours in Christ Jesus? And this is where we come to the center of Philippians, the, the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and also kind of smack dab in the middle of, of the book of, well, maybe not quite, I'm exaggerating, but not almost smack dab in the middle of the, of the entire letter to the Philippians. It's, it's this revelation of the nature and scope of Jesus's self-giving and self-sacrificing work in the universe and in our lives. Verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, we could spend our lifetimes expanding our our knowledge of these seven verses and still not fully comprehend or encompass the expansiveness of the self-giving love of God in Christ on behalf of a broken and groaning creation. This this model that, that is sort of lifted up to us about who Jesus is, is so profoundly different from the orientation of the culture in which Paul is, is writing this letter. So, so Philippi, as, as, as you may or may not know, Philippi was part of the Roman Empire. And, and it, was a, it was an important thing for many to have the citizenship or association with the rights and benefits of that, that said Roman Empire. But, but Jesus is being set up as offering a profoundly different example of what it means to be a ruler, to what it means to even be God. So in, as some of you know, in the stories, Greco-Roman stories of gods, many of them would, would maybe come down in, 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 in a humanoid form, but they would exercise some kind of power over the, the, the people that they were interacting with. And so there was still this sense of their, their, their Godhead was one of power over others. And in the sense of Caesar as an example of the, the ruler of the, of the nation states, uh, the ruler of this empire, 
Caesar would never stoop down from that place, that position of power in order to be among people. There were, there were always the attendant people and attendant circumstances around proper deference that was due to Caesar. And yet in, this, in these verses, there is this flipping on its head that, that the God of the universe come in flesh comes among us and comes alongside of us. Something that is, is unimaginable, unconceivable, inconceivable under the conditions of, of the culture and the state. In the remaining two hours we have together, <laughs> joking, I, I, won't, I want to hone us in on, on one dimension of what's happening or one further dimension of what's happening uh, remember, Paul, Paul is saying that this is the mind of Christ and that we have this mind already as part of our inheritance of belonging to God. So this beautiful hymn to Christ speaks to the depths to which Jesus goes in order to rescue and restore us, to share in our humanity, to live as we lived and most beautifully, I think, to hold in himself, to make room, to empty himself, himself in order to make room for the fragility and breakability of our mortality. And to ultimately pass through the judgment of sin and the ultimate humiliation of death. To suffer and die, which marks all of our human existence and to carry, to bring us along with him through death into resurrection and exalted life through the Holy Spirit. We become worthy of the gospel of Jesus, not by some sheer act of will or dedication or amazing feat of self-sacrifice. We become worthy because Jesus is worthy And as we come to believe in him, receive from him, we share in his worthiness before the Father. And what a a relief. I find that a relief. Jesus took on our humanity in all things except sin. And this means that Jesus enters into our pain enters into our failure, our prejudice, our fear. He invites us to receive of his very life, his very self and mind that we take on. He took on our humanity that we might share in his perfected humanity. And it's it's within this framework of God's work in Christ and how we are partakers in him that Paul admonishes the Philippians. Some of us might also have baggage with this expression, but he says I, um, in the, further in the passage, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As followers of Jesus, we are called saints We are called to lead lives characterized and suffused by holiness. But this is not a self-imposed legalism or a survival of the fittest 
feat of moral gymnastics. Rather, the, the willing and the working both originate in God. I'm going to say that again. The willing and the working originate in God, who is at work through our sharing in the Spirit. In other words, we are always being equipped for this work in our lives. And from this reframing, Paul returns yet again to this paradigm of unity through humility. Unity is exercised in tangible ways in the body of Christ in the church. Paul writes, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The result of this unity through humility is a revelation to others. He says, you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. This confirms that we have kept the faith, being reminded that it is God who keeps us in that same faith and makes us worthy to share in the blessedness in Christ. In a few moments, in a few minutes after this time of of corporate prayer together, uh, we will turn to the Eucharist, to Holy Communion. And in many ways, the Eucharist is a reenacting and an entering into the living reality of this hymn that we have just heard to Christ. The Eucharist, the, the great thanksgiving, is the church's constant reminder of the pre-existent son taking on our humanity, humbling himself to the point of being broken in body, poured out in blood, and yet given for the life and the blessing of the world. We are only able to share in this because the father has exalted him so that when we partake of this communion, we are caught up In his exaltation, we confess in our reception that he is in reality Lord. Jesus is the one who makes it possible for us to no longer walk in fear of suffering or flounder in unworthiness. Jesus makes it possible for us to strive together, united in one mind, through the humble consideration of each other. And to work side by side with our brothers and sisters. Yet we must always and afresh open ourselves to his working in us. We must open ourselves to having our minds renewed and transformed. Realizing that, it, that his mind is ours as he is in us and we in him. In the midst of our failures and burdens, in the midst of Jesus' humiliation and suffering, we with Paul still have cause to rejoice. For we know that his worthiness redeems and transforms our unworthiness and that God's work in us will allow us, in the words of the post-communion prayer, to do the work that God has given us to do, to love and serve him as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord.
Let's take a moment to pray.